So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Daniel chapter 4 this morning. We're working our way slowly and methodically through the book of Daniel together. We're in Daniel 4, uh, verses 1 to 27 this morning. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures in front of you, uh, the words will be on the screen behind me so you can follow along as we read together. Uh, but we pick up in Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read together down through verse 27. Daniel 4, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a great tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and it, its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud, and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are, for the Spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, 
who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till the seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is God's word. Last week, or a couple of weeks ago now, as we left Dallas driving to Orlando, I had one eye on Google Maps and another eye on weather.com, okay? Um, because as a South Louisiana boy raised spitting distance from the Gulf of Mexico, I've seen my fair share of tropical depressions, tropical storms, and hurricanes. In fact, my family, my hometown, my family's home was destroyed by one last year when Hurricane Laura made landfall in southwest Louisiana. My parents are still living in a RV rented for them by the insurance company while they try to rebuild. And so with Hurricane or Tropical Storm Elsa moving up the western coast of Florida as we drove down into the belly of the beast, right, we've got one eye on Google Maps and one eye on weather.com because I've seen the potential destruction of these tropical systems. Right? And so the forecast was ever-changing as that cone got wide, was very wide initially and got narrower and narrower as they forecasted the projected track of where that storm was going to move. And fortunately, it stayed out to the west of us and did not impact us as we drove into Orlando. But our eyes were fixed on the forecast because we wanted to know what was coming in the future. Right? And that's what forecasting does. It looks at all the conditions and everything around and it predicts what's going to come to pass in the future. Meteorologists get on the news every night and they forecast what the weather's going to be the next day and the next week. And the 10-day forecast. I don't know if you're a meteorologist, married to one or no one, right? But sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it dead wrong, okay? And so there's percentage chances of precipitation, how hot it's going to be, all those kinds of things, but they're forecasting. They're predicting what's coming in the future and giving you information to make decisions in the present, right? Meteorologists not only forecast, but demographers tell you about where population trends are going, what areas are going to grow, what areas are going to shrink. You've got economists who rely on projections and economic models that forecast, right, where to invest, when to invest, what to invest, when not to invest, all those kinds of things. All these disciplines rely on forecasting because forecasting is an attempt to predict the future, show you what's coming out ahead of you so you can make decisions in the present and know how to respond. And in our text this morning, there is a forecast of a great fall. 
that would take place, of a kingdom that would be raised to the ground, of a king that would have his legs cut out from underneath him. Right? Daniel, in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, the king has another dream. He had a dream back in chapter 2. He has another dream here in chapter 4. And this dream in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a great tree. Right? Like the, the, the tree of life. Right? This big massive tree that has providing fruit and food for all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, all the peoples and nations and tribes and tongues have come under the shade and found shelter and, and a place to be fed with un, with, under its branches. Right? They're feasting off of it. Right? And, and Daniel says to the king, he says, listen king, that's you. That is the kingdom that you've established. That is the kingdom that you have built. He says, but however, in the dream, whenever it is cut to the ground and, and brought down to a stump, right? And this stump represents Nebuchadnezzar as the king because he says um, the, the mind of a man would be taken from him. He'd be given the mind of an animal. He'd be like a beast roaming the field, grazing on the grass of the field. Judgment's coming, O king, until you know, until you know that it's the Most High who rules over the earth. So essentially, the forecast that's given here to Nebuchadnezzar is the forecast of a great fall that would take place for him on account of his pride. On account of his pride. And we've all heard that pride comes before the fall. Right? And it does in every aspect of our lives. So many marriages have collapsed and fallen to sh- and been shattered to pieces on account of pride. Right? Relationships have been rent and torn asunder on account of pride. Churches. I'm listening to a podcast right now about a church that fell to the ground. That had been a a church of 15,000 members preaching true gospel, but because the culture within the church was full of narcissistic leadership and pride, the church collapsed. Churches fall to the ground. Marriages fall to the ground. Relationships between parents and children are destroyed, oftentimes on account of pride. Pride comes before the fall. And so it does for the king as well. Right? And the, the heart of the king is filled with pride. And the reason the presence of pride, church, is the leading indicator that forecasts a fall is this. It's because God always, in every generation, in all places, opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. See, one of the themes in Daniel is, would be a simple three-word affirmation. God is God. Right? As, as basic as it gets. God is God, and there is no other. God is God, and He will not share His glory with another. God is God. He plants and He plucks up. He cultivates and He cuts down. God is God and He establishes the times and places and seasons of our lives. Of all the peoples on the planet, God is God and He governs history according to His own ends, according to His own purposes to achieve His own glory. God is God and He raises up kings and He raises them, burns them to the ground when necessary in judgment. 
God is God as the sovereign king who rules over all of the universe, everything that he's made in all places. He stands against anyone who would dare attempt to usurp him, who would go toe to toe with him, who would try to take his place and establish themselves in his position. He always, in every generation, in every place, at all times, opposes the proud. Opposes the proud. And with the giving of this dream, God says to Nebuchadnezzar, he gets all up in his face, right? And he's jamming him up on account of his pride. You see Nebuchadnezzar's pride unfold as you read the story of Daniel from chapter 1. In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem, ransacked the temple, brought captives out in exile, and led them to Babylon. And in Babylon, he tries to deprogram them from thinking like young Hebrew men and reprogram them to think like young Babylonian men to reshape their worldview because in his mind, Babylon was the pinnacle of human creation and the Babylonian worldview was preeminent. In chapter 2, contains another dream about a statue made of different materials indicating that there would be kingdoms that would come after his. He's the head of gold, but there's also silver and there's bronze and there's iron and there's clay indicating that every kingdom of this earth, for every kingdom of this world, there's always going to be and after this. And then in response to that dream, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3, he builds a 90-foot statue of gold and sets it out on the plain and commands all peoples of all nations and tribes and tongues under his jurisdiction to come when the band plays, bow down and worship the image that he has made. And when three Hebrew young men refuse to do so, he throws them into a blazing hot furnace. The epitome of pride. Come and worship as I prescribed, the way that I have ordained, or else face death. And here in chapter 4, you see his pride on display again. You have another dream about these massive tree where the beasts and the birds take refuge, the peoples of the earth, and it gets stripped of its leaves, its trunk is sliced, and in verse 25, Daniel says this judgment is coming until, right? We'll get to the rest of the story next week, but until Nebuchadnezzar knows that God is God. Right? See, until a person recognizes that God is God, until they recognize that, there's endless communication of that truth that comes to them in various ways and means and channels as God seeks to gain their attention. You know, one of the ways we emphasize something, if you're writing a a paper for school, some of you are still in school, writing a paper for school, right? Or if you're writing a document for your workplace, the way you emphasize things in, in computers and word processors is you can embolden type, right? Or you can italicize type, or you can underline type, or you can highlight type with certain colors, okay? You can put little asterisks out next to it. But the biblical authors, they didn't have Microsoft Word, Okay? They're writing with pen and paper. And so the way that they would emphasize things was through repetition. Through saying the same thing over and over and over. And in chapter 4, in verse 3, we read these words, His kingdom, God's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. In other words, He rules over all for all time. Is what He's saying. 
And then in verse 17, we're told that the complete sentence that would come upon Nebuchadnezzar, these seven periods of time, in the, in the, in the Hebrew mind, seven was a number of fullness or completeness. In other words, this, there's going to be a complete judgment, a full judgment to fall upon Nebuchadnezzar, right? And he says the purpose behind that in verse 17 is that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. His kingdom rules over all for all time and those who would stand in opposition to that, he says God would cut them down until they recognize that He is God. And then in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar shall be made to eat grass like an ox, wet with the dew of heaven. These times of seasons will pass over him until he knows that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. That's, I mean, three times in 27 verses, he says the same thing. God rules over all for all time. And we as His creation, men and women created in His image, must recognize that or else, or else there's a forecast of a fall. Now listen, pride, church, is not only a problem for political figures like Nebuchadnezzar or prolific athletes or successful business persons or artists. Pride's a problem for every single one of us in every one of our hearts. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. And I want you to hear what he says about it. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others and of which hardly any people except some Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. One commentator actually commenting on Lewis's statement said, pride is one of the few sins that is still almost universally recognized as being wrong. The remainder of the seven traditional deadly sins, lust, sloth, greed, and so on, have long since been recategorized as being harmless faults or even virtues in some cultures, but pride is still generally reckoned deservedly to go before the fall. In fact, even people who would not regard themselves as religious find pride offensive. Yet at the same time, few people actually recognize the sin of pride within themselves. We may see it readily enough in others, but often deceptively slides undetected into our own hearts that's why pride goes before a fall it forecasts it every single time because pride is so often undetectable it's like this it's like we see all these symptoms in our lives but we can't put a finger on the source it's kind of like a cancer growing underneath that causes pain in different places and parts of our body but we can't figure out why right we, we didn't hit ourselves we didn't cut ourselves but we got all kinds of pain and pressure points coming because there's something growing inside of us that we can't see that's what pride is. And so if it's so undetectable, let me ask, I want to help us this morning, kind of think about what are some indicators on the dashboard of our lives that could sh show up as potentially problem areas for pride. 
or give us a like red warning flag saying, listen, there's something going on under the surface. What is it symptomatic of pride? Jonathan Edwards was so helpful on this in a sermon I read of his years ago. I'm going to give you five things he says real quickly about how you recognize pride. First of all, he says pride makes a person unteachable. He says the proud person is full of light already and feels that he does not need instruction. So he is ready to despise the offer of it. In other words, I feel like I already know everything I, I need to know. I already feel like I've gotten all the information that I need to receive. And so I can't learn anything from anybody else. And one of the ways this shows up so subtly in life is whenever we feel like we cannot learn from people who we might disagree with on certain issues. Right? Listen, there is not a single person that I agree with about everything other than the person staring at the mirror back at me in the morning. And some days I wonder about him too. Right? But there, listen, if we can't learn from people, other people who we might disagree with on certain issues, whenever they are rock solid on others, it means that there's potential for pride within our hearts if we're not teachable. Second of all, the proud person is critical and judgmental. Proud people, he's, Jonathan Edwards, Edwards says, proud people tend to speak of other sins. The miserable delusion of the hypocrites, the deadness of some saints with bitterness, or the opposition to holiness of many believers. He says this, but pure Christian humility, however, is silent often about the sins of others or speaks of them with grief and pity. The spiritually proud person finds fault with other saints for their lack of progress in grace while the humble Christian sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He complains most of himself and of his own spiritual coldness and readily hopes that most everybody has more love and thankfulness to God than he does. See, the proud person always has an objection. They always have a critique of somebody else. And this happens in churches when people are critical of everyone else, their walk with God, the way they raise their kids, the way that they are parenting and trying to invest in other people, the way that they handle social unrest, the way they responded to the pandemic. Everybody's got an opinion, and it's okay to have an opinion. The problem is when pride takes that and elevates it to a place of principle and says everyone's got to respond this way. And makes us critical and judgmental. Third, the spiritually proud person is a separatist for separation's sake. Edward says, spiritual pride often disposes people to act different in external appearance. To assume some different way of speaking, countenance, or behavior. However, the humble Christian, though he will be firm in his duty, going the way of heaven alone, even if all the world forsake him, yet he does not delight in being different for different sake. He does not try to set himself up to be viewed and observed as one distinguished, but on the contrary, is disposed to become all things to all men, to yield to others, to conform to them and please them in all but sin. In other words, I will be deferent to you in every other area other than when you ask me to cross the line into sin. He says the proud person is separate for separation's sake, is different just for the sake of difference, not to honor God and to love others. Fourth, the proud person cannot, listen, this is getting real, all right? The proud person cannot handle criticism. They're hyper, hypersensitive. Edward says proud people take great notice of opposition and injuries. 
and are prone to speak often about them with an air of bitterness or contempt. So you see, when, what happens with the proud person who's hypersensitive, right, when they're exalting themselves, and they're hypersensitive when critique or criticism, they're quick to criticize and critique others, but they're hypersensitive whenever it comes their way. Because oftentimes what we are willing to admit to ourselves and to others is that we are sinners, but how dare anyone else call us sinners or point out sin in our lives? Right? So we want to push back, we bristle against that. Right? We're willing to acknowledge that we, our lives might be a train wreck, right? but how dare anybody else call us a train wreck? Right? And we, put, we, want to, we bristle and push back. Right? Because we cannot handle criticism. It's a prime indicator, should be flashing on the dashboard of our life, that pride is operative within our hearts. And listen, church, so many of the problems in our relationships, so many problems in our marriages, so many of the problems in our relationships with our children and our co-workers and people in our neighborhood, our friendships, are rooted in this. They're rooted in this. Fifth, the proud person positions themselves at the center of attention. Another pattern of pride, Edward says, is people behave in ways that make them the focus of others. It's natural for a person under the influence of pride to take all the respect that is paid to him. If others show a disposition to submit to him and yield in deference to him, he is open to it and freely receives it. In fact, they come to expect such treatment and to form an ill opinion of those who do not give them what they feel they deserve. In other words, a proud person is happy to receive all the accolades and all the praise and all the attaboys and all the pats on the back and all the compliments. And in fact, when somebody doesn't do that, one of the ways you know that pride is operative in your heart, when somebody refuses to do that, like everyone else does, all of these glowing reviews and recommendations, then you think something's wrong with them. Right? Because they don't see in you what everyone else sees in you. Well, maybe you just surrounded yourself with a bunch of yes men and yes women. Right, who, because maybe the way you've responded when people tried to lean in and show areas of your life that you have not yet seen, you bristled and pushed them away. So the only people who hang around you are people who say good things about you. That's pride. That's pride, church. It's present in all of us. Just as it was in Nebuchadnezzar. So how do we respond to it? How do we respond to pride? Listen, the way I would say it to you from this text this morning is this, is that you and I have to learn to respond to the revelation we have. Respond to the revelation we have. In verse 27, the very first word out of Daniel's mouth in verse 27 is this word, therefore. Therefore. Now, You've probably heard me say, or some other little pithy preacher say at some point in the past, right, that when you see the word therefore, you've got to understand what it's there for. And it's there for a reason, right? Because therefore is drawing an implication or a conclusion out of what has come before it. And in verse 27, Daniel says, On account of this dream that you've received, O king, of judgment falling upon you, of you being chopped to the ground, your kingdom collapsing around you, and you being driven mad out into the fields with the mind of a beast to graze on the grass of the ground, therefore... In other words, you ought to respond to the revelation that you've been given. There ought to be some way in which you are responding to that. Is the opportunity that God puts before him. And then Daniel gives him counsel. 
of, of how he should respond. This is what he says in verse 27. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. In other words, there's, you ought to bear fruit in keeping, as Jesus says, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. He says the way you ought to respond to this revelation is to repent of your pride, to repent of your self-exaltation, to repent of your self-confidence, to repent of that arrogance that you have about you of thinking that all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air are coming to nest and root under your branches because of you. You ought to repent of that, King. And we know from the rest of the chapter the king doesn't heed Daniel's counsel. Not initially, anyway. And judgment does fall upon him, and he's driven mad out into the field, which we'll look at some next week. But ought to teach us this is whenever we ignore God's revelation, we do so to our own peril. When we ignore what God has clearly said, what God has clearly revealed, we do so to our own destruction. And listen, God is, church, He's still speaking. He is speaking in every generation, in all times, and in all places. The Bible affirms that God's constantly communicating. And I'm not ruling out the fact that God could continue to speak through dreams and visions, yet God has clearly spoken to us. Right? By His Son, in His Word, through His Spirit. He's clearly revealed things to us in His Word. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His... Some of you know it. His Son. His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He created the world. So God's spoken to us through the revelation of Jesus, the incarnation, God in the flesh coming to live and dwell among us, to set up His tent... And be in our presence. Right? The one who once stood behind the holy of holies in the temple, the very radiance of the glory of God has kind of come to dwell in bodily form in Jesus Christ. The divine Son, eternal with God, co-equal with God, has come to reveal God to us. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we also read about the Scriptures. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, God has spoken by His Son, and He's also spoken through His Word. The Word incarnate and the Word inscribed. He's spoken in both of those ways to us to reveal Himself, His character, and His will. So we don't have to walk around guessing what God has said. We don't have to walk around speculating about what God desires. He's shown it clearly to us. And in the same way that Daniel says in verse 27 to Nebuchadnezzar, after God's revelation in this dream, he says, therefore, you and I have a therefore stamped over the course of our lives as God has spoken. There ought to be a response to it. There ought, we ought to respond to the revelation that we have, church. Because if we reject God's revelation, we do so to our own peril. Let me tell you, we, re, we do so to our own peril eternally. If pride continues to be the ruling force of your life and goes unchecked all the days of your life 
and exalting yourself against God and, 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 and wanting to earn your place with God. Listen, this is how legalism works. Legalism says, some of us are so fed up with the church because we think the church is full of legalists. I love what Brian said this morning. No, we're full of a bunch of sinners who need God's grace every single day. But it's how legalism works. It says, listen, if you do enough, if you achieve enough, if you're impressive enough, if your spiritual resume is padded enough, right, then you can come into God's presence and present it to Him, and He will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Right? He will receive you on the basis of what you do. You know what that is? At the heart of that, at the root of that, is pride. Of saying, I can do it. Right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me, and so should God. Right? At the, at the root of that is pride. The same pride Nebuchadnezzar has in thinking that he has established his kingdom when God has put him in the position that he's in. And if we continue to walk, come to God in that capacity, listen, we will do so to our peril eternally. Because there is none of us, none of our resumes are impressive to God. In fact, Isaiah says it this way. He says that our, our righteous deeds, our righteous acts, they're like filthy rags in the presence of God. Because so often they're done. They're out of a motive. Not love for God and love for our fellow man, but a desire to impress and establish our identity, to make something out of ourselves and make a name for us. That motive is what drives us apart from Christ. It propels us apart from Christ. So even the good things we do are tainted by our impure motives. So there's no way that we can earn our way to God. There's no way that our pride can result in our salvation. What results in our salvation is the grace of God and us humbling ourselves beneath Him. Saying God is God. He's established a means of salvation and in the sending of His Son who lived in our place and died in our place and rose from the grave, if we were to call upon the name of Jesus in faith and throw ourselves upon God's mercy, not bringing our merits and saying, God, accept me, accept me, accept me because I've made a name for myself and by the way, God, I also made a name for you too. Right? But if we come to Him and say, I have nothing to offer. I need everything from you because you are God and established your kingdom in all places for all times. I don't even deserve to be a citizen, but by grace you allow me to be through your son. You will repent of sin and place your confidence in Jesus. That's the only way. It's the only way to salvation. There is no other means. And if we reject or neglect God's revelation of His Son as the only means to salvation, then we do so to our eternal peril. Eternal separation from God. In a real place the Bible calls hell. But listen, if we reject God's revelation, we also do to our temporal peril. In other words, here and now, and in this life. Right? Because not only is God revealed right, His 
His means of salvation. Not only has God revealed the, His provision for eternal life, but He's also revealed a provision for an abundant life here and now. An abundant one. You know, in John chapter 10, verse 10, when Jesus says, right, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, okay, so that what Satan wants to do is ransack our lives and wreck shop. Okay, he wants to erode everything. He wants to exalt our pride so that we think that we are something that we are not, which would cause all kinds of falls in our lives. That's what his aim is. But he says, I have come, Jesus says, that you may have life and have it not easily, but abundantly, a fullness of life, a quality of life that you can never have apart from Him. And so you reject God's revelation to your eternal peril if you reject Jesus, but you also reject it to your temporal peril because your life, will, you'll never know the fullness and abundance of life that can be found through joy in Jesus Christ. And so you can try to, we can try to manufacture life on our own terms. We can try to establish our own sets of moral standards, our own rights and wrongs. Right? We can renegotiate things in bills and laws, but listen, we will do so to our own destruction because pride, exalting ourselves against and above God in His revelation, always, always is the leading indicator that would forecast a fall. So Respond. To God's revelation. When the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and begins to press on areas of your life, that's called conviction of sin. And when He does that, listen, instead of rejecting and pushing it away, receive it, embrace it, and walk in repentance, turning away from those things and experience life on the other side of that that is full of joy even if it does involve sorrow. Because those two things are not mutually exclusive. Respond to the revelation that God gives. The revelation that you have. That's the first step to dealing with pride. is saying, God, you are God. I am not. I'm going to receive this revelation. Respond to it. And where repentance is needed, repentance will be exercised. But the second thing, and the final thing I want you to see in this text this morning is this. Is that what leads us to that kind of repentance? What is it that leads us to that kind of repentance? All right. In Romans chapter 2, in verse 4, we're told that it's God's kindness that leads us, is intended to lead us to repentance. It's His kindness. So listen, God's kindness is intended to lead us, you and me, to a place of repentance. Not to be abused, not to be manipulated, but God withholding from us what we deserve, right? His kind act towards us ought to be something that would lead us to turn away from running and ruling our own lives, the essence of pride and sin, to submitting ourselves to Him. It's His kindness, church. And so if we're going to repent, if we're going to respond to God's revelation appropriately, then we need to marvel at God's mercy. Let me show you. Let me show you. This, this struck me this week as I read this text in Daniel chapter 4. That the revelation given by God through the dream to Nebuchadnezzar doesn't mean all hope is lost for the king. Here's why. Because Daniel 
in verse 27 says there's room for repentance. And he says the purpose of that. That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Listen, church, there is a divine perhaps for all of us. That's the mercy of God. That this divine perhaps, who knows what God might restore? Who knows what God might heal? Who knows what God might put back together that we have torn down? Who knows what God might do? Wonder if we step forward in faith and repenting from our pride. Who knows the kind of healing that our marriages might experience if we turn from always being right in every situation. That's the mercy of God that has withheld perhaps divorce from some of us in the room to this day to bring you here to hear what God has to say that if you would repent of your pride, because of God's kindness to you, He's withheld that. What mighty heal? What, what, what mighty fix? When He gets under the hood of your life and in your heart and begins to reorder your priorities around Himself. What freedom might you experience from no longer walking in bitterness? You know why bitterness festers in our heart for as long as it does without extending forgiveness? Pride. What freedom might you enjoy then? Because of God's mercy. How might your relationship with your children be restored and rebuilt? Because perhaps you were willing to step forward and say, I was wrong. Not about everything. But about these things. What about relations with parents? If you're their children, they're going to say the same thing. You know what that is? That's God's revelation coming to you. You responding in repentance. And God's mercy. The perhaps. The lengthening of prosperity. Listen, that, it's not a that's not a promise that God's going to open the heavens and make it rain. But that He's able to restore all the years, as Joel says, that the locusts have eaten. Marvel at His mercy, church. It leads you to a place of experiencing repentance and turning from pride, saying, I'm not going to run and rule my own life anymore. I'm going to come under and submit to you. Because I know as long as I continue to exalt myself against you, you're going to be in opposition to me. So what's the therefore for you this morning? How do you need to respond? In just a moment, we're going to receive the Lord's table together as a church body. Perhaps no better time for us to pray and process what repentance looks like. 
and to rejoice in God's mercy as we remember His Son whose body was broken for us and His Son whose blood was shed for us to cover our sins, to give us eternal life. So listen, church, if you're here this morning and, 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 and you are a Christian, in a moment, whenever Brian and Angela come to lead us in song once again, we invite you to come to the table. If you've repented of sin, you've trusted in Christ, you've placed your confidence in Him for your salvation, we invite you to come and to receive the bread and the cup to remember the body of Jesus broken for you, to remember the blood of Jesus shed for you. If you're not a Christian this morning, you've never come to a place in your life where you've repented of sin. You've never placed your faith in Jesus, put your confidence in Him. You've always thought at the end of the age, hey, God's going to put us all on a scale. The good people are going right, to rise up to the top. The bad people are going to go down to the bottom. Right? If that's still your mentality, then do not come to the table this morning because this is not for you at this time. Not until you do come to a place where you repent of sin and you place your faith in Jesus. Your confidence in Him and not in yourself. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing together, rejoicing in the mercy of God, coming to the table to receive the bread and the cup together. If you're a Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to come. If you're not a Christian who's repented of sin and trusted in Christ, we invite you to stay seated where you are and keep coming because we're going to keep preaching this Jesus week after week after week and we hope that one day you're able to join us here at this table. Let me pray for us. Father, today, we're thankful for your mercy. Your mercies, as Brian read earlier, that are new every morning. Because your faithfulness is great towards us. Even whenever our faithfulness towards you is lacking. Father, where there is need for repentance, which is in all of our lives. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to do so today. That we would not waste any more time exalting ourselves against you, rejecting your revelation, experiencing your opposition because of our pride. But God, may we humble ourselves so that we don't have to be humbled by you. in this life and in the life to come. May we humble ourselves today and confess our sin, repent of it, receive the revelation of Your Son, receive the revelation of Your Word, and walk in faith, experience joy, and rejoice in Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.